Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. Morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Doing good? Not quiet. You know, today's the first day of spring. I heard that coming in today. You guys are not excited about the first day of spring. Oh, boy. Strange. Seems strange. All right, this morning we are continuing our series on the Passion of Christ, and that's looking specifically at the last few days of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. And you might remember two weeks ago we looked at the Last Supper, where Jesus talked about Passover, and he was bringing in a new covenant symbolized by the bread and the wine. Then last week we were looking at uh, the passage where Jesus was on trial, we see that Jesus had a, a trial that was very shady, where it was not done correctly, false witnesses were brought against him, and he was convicted, where he was brought before Pilate, the governor, who literally washed his hands of Jesus. And so we see that things are transpiring very quickly at this part of Matthew's gospel. And what we're going to look at today is the crucifixion itself. Things have been moving towards this point in the story. And today we're going to look at what happened as Jesus died upon the cross in anticipation of next week when we look forward to the Easter morning celebration. So this morning's passage is quite long. We left off last week. We were in the middle of Matthew chapter 27. We're going to pick up exactly where we left off last week. We're going to start at verse 27 and go through the rest of the chapter And uh, rather than read through the whole thing, I'm just going to take it a a piece at a time. And so we'll read a few verses, talk about those verses, and we'll work our way through the passage that way. And so we're just going to jump right in, Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. And uh, here we go. And um, I'm going to read the verses, and um, they'll be on the screen. And then, um, as I said, we'll kind of pause and talk about each section of the time. So this follows right on from last week. What happened right before this was that Jesus was before Pilate. Uh, The crowd wanted Barabbas to be released, and Pilate hands Jesus over to the soldiers. Starting in verse 27, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again, and they mocked him. They took off the robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. So we see right away that Jesus is with the Roman soldiers, and the, we see that, he's at the governor, uh, that the governor's soldiers took him to the praetorium, and the praetorium was the official residence of the Roman governor whenever he would come to Jerusalem. So when he would come to Jerusalem, he would stay at this residence, the Praetorium, and that's where his soldiers were stationed or garrisoned. And the scholars tell us that this is probably about 600 soldiers that were stationed at the time. And the text tells us here that all of the soldiers came together. So Jesus was not alone by any means. He was away from the public eye. He was hidden in this Praetorium, and this is kind of out of sight. But Jesus has a lot of soldiers around him, and they're mocking him. Now, what was the charge against Jesus? Well, You know, from the Roman perspective, it was that Jesus was the king of the Jews. 
And so we see continually that the soldiers push on that point. They say, okay, if you're the king of the Jews, this is how we treat a king of the Jews. We give a king of the Jews a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. We'll give you a scepter. We'll put a robe on your back. We will even bow down and worship you. But all of this is to further heap shame and abuse on Jesus. And Jesus has already been flogged at this point, and now he's being verbally abused and beaten. The Jews have already rejected Jesus, and now we see that the Romans, the Gentiles, are also turning against Jesus. And this is symbolic of the fact that all of humanity has now turned against Jesus. Remember that his closest friends have His disciples have run away, so all of those people that knew him well are gone. We can see that the government has turned against Jesus. They're the ones who are inflicting all of this pain on him. The religious rulers have turned against him. The justice system has betrayed him. At every point of life that you look at, everyone has turned against Jesus. Matthew's Gospel continues in verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you were the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So we come now to the crucifixion itself. And it's actually quite a short description in Matthew's Gospel. A lot of the details are left out. There's a lot that's going on here. And it's not just looking at Jesus himself, but it's looking at all of the things that were happening around Jesus as he was dying on the cross We see a lot of characters or people who are drawn into this story as Jesus is dying. We read that there's a man from Cyrene named Simon who carries the cross for Jesus. Normally when people were convicted and uh, were going out to be crucified, they would carry their own cross. But Jesus by this point is so weak that they have someone else do it. And they find this guy Simon. And Simon is from Cyrene and that's a part of North Africa. So Simon, we know, has come on pilgrimage to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And he's literally picked off the street and told to carry the cross for Jesus. We see that Jesus is um, side by side with two criminals or two rebels. We see that there are chief priests and there are elders and teachers of the law that are all present. Jesus is crucified outside of the city, and that's a crucial point. Crucifixions happened outside of the city. And the sign above Jesus mocks him by saying he's the king of the Jews. And this is actually insulting not just to Jesus, but also to the Jews. Where the Romans were saying to the Jews, oh, you think you have a king? Well, here he is right here. This is what we do to Jewish kings. 
The soldiers, as Jesus is dying, keep a close watch on him. The reference in there about bitter wine and Jesus refusing the bitter wine, um, that has to do with a, a, a common kind of potion or concoction at the time, and it was kind of this homemade pain-killing remedy that would ease the pain of people as they were dying. But we see that Jesus refuses this, and Jesus refuses to take any comfort while he's on the cross. Jesus is crucified between these two rebels and criminals, and this is Jesus' association in death, that he's associated with criminals. This was the most shameful way for somebody to die in the culture at the time. It's very likely that the cross that Jesus died on was actually for Barabbas, who was freed just a few verses before by Pilate. Crucifixion was designed to be extremely painful, extremely shameful. Eventually, people would die by the sheer exhaustion of having to hold themselves up on the cross. It would sometimes take days, but in the case of Jesus, we know it took just a few hours. Interesting point here is that the crowd as they mock Jesus, and even Jesus' own words, are all echoes of Psalm 22. And if you want to see a foreshadowing of the shame of the cross, read Psalm 22 because the words of Jesus and the words of the crowd are contained there. We continue with Matthew's Gospel in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them went and grabbed a sponge. And they filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance, and they had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So here is the moment, the very final moments of Jesus' life where he suffers the final agony of death and being separated from God the Father. Thick darkness covers the earth in the middle of the day. And people have speculated as to what this was, but Matthew's Gospel, as we read it, Matthew seems to be telling us that this is a sign of the displeasure of heaven. This darkness falling in the middle of the day at what was happening. Echoing the words of Psalm 22, Jesus cries out in anguish that God has forsaken him, and once he has cried out, he dies. And this has been described as a moment where Jesus continues to keep his faith in God, even as the relationship he has with God his Father is broken. Jesus doesn't call God Father in this moment. He says, my God, which is a sign even in the words that Jesus uses of the distance that has come between them. The next extraordinary events that happen 
include the curtain in the temple being torn in two, rocks splitting, an earthquake, holy people coming back to life, people are terrified, the centurion guard says this must be the Son of God. It's a scene of chaos, disruption, and fear. I don't know if you think about this normally when you think of the crucifixion, but it was crazy when Jesus died. All the stuff that suddenly happened. If you can imagine being there and saying, why is it dark in the middle of the day? What is going on with all of the, there's an earth, I mean, it's just crazy. And it causes people to say, this was the Son of God. I want to talk about a couple of things here, two points from these verses that are really important to hone in on. First of all, the curtain in the temple is torn. Now, the temple would have been very close by in the city of Jerusalem. Remember, the crucifixion happens just outside the city walls. In the temple, you had the Holy of Holies, which was the sanctuary where God's presence dwelt, where the priests could only go in one time per year. It was the most sacred space. It was at the very heart of the Jewish religion. And they think it's that curtain that was torn. Now, a couple of things about this curtain. One, it's incredibly detailed and heavy, and it's just huge. There's no way you could go in and just tear this curtain. It's not a small thing. I don't know how you picture that curtain, but it is a significant (laughs) artifact. It is something that is not easily torn. Second, it's torn from the top to the bottom. This is a work of God, not a work of human hands. What does it mean that this, this is torn? Well, the scholars think that it's a couple of things. One, they think that it's the presence of God departing from the temple. God's presence is leaving the temple. And why is that important? It's important because no longer is access to God governed by the Jewish religious system. Jesus himself, through his death, has just made a way for everyone to come into the presence of God. Jesus has just made a way for everyone to access God the Father. We no longer need a temple, a physical temple. We no longer need a curtain or a veil. Secondly, from these verses, we see that the Roman centurion and soldiers declare that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, this is a really important point in the gospel. And Matthew wants us to really pay attention to this. So at various points throughout the gospel of Matthew, Jesus has said, I'm the Son of God. God the Father has said, this is my Son. Remember his baptism. Uh, Demons have said that Jesus is who he says he was. Uh, Jesus' disciples have said, yeah, we believe that you are the Son of God. But outside of that group of people, nobody else has acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God until this moment. So it's right in the moment of Jesus' death that the wider world, represented by this centurion, finally acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God. That from the moment of his death, it has become clear to the world that Jesus is who he said he is. We move to verse 57, the burial of Jesus. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So 
The timeline of events here, from what Matthew has told us, this all would have had to happen quite quickly because Jesus would have to be buried before the start of Passover in order to stay within Jewish regulations and rules. And so it's possible that Joseph even had to go to Pilate while Jesus was still on the cross and still alive, that Joseph would have looked and said, Jesus is going to die. And normally what would happen to somebody who was crucified is that their dead body would be taken off the cross and thrown in the dirt, just left outside to rot. And Joseph thought, there's no way this can happen to Jesus. He's a follower of Jesus. He's a rich man. He must have had some influence. He goes to Pilate and gets a face-to-face with Pilate, and he says, give me the body of Jesus. Now, Pilate, who knows what he's thinking, is like, fine, take the body. body of Jesus is worthless to Pilate at this point. So, Joseph probably had help to take the body of Jesus off of the cross. It's wrapped in linen and placed in the tomb. Now, this tomb was something that Joseph had prepared for himself and his family. This was something he had done at considerable expense to himself. This was a real sacrifice for Joseph because um, the tomb is not going to be used for Jesus instead of him. And he is sacrificing that and allowing Jesus to use the tomb. Uh, The stone would have been a disc-shaped stone that is rolled into place. A heavy stone that normally was on some kind of incline to make sure that it stayed, it was in a groove to make sure it stayed where it was supposed to. So to move that was take considerable effort. The other thing that's interesting here is that uh, we see that Matthew goes out of his way to honor the women who are with Jesus. And we see all of his male friends and disciples have run away. And there's a key a message here that the women who were there with Jesus provided comfort, even though he's in the tomb at this point, that they are the ones who remain. And they are the ones, we'll see next week, who receive the first news of the resurrection. Our final verses for today. The next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. And they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. So this is not the next day, so Jesus has died on the Friday, and this is the next day, the Sabbath. And um, a couple of really interesting things that happen here in this episode, because despite all that has happened, so Jesus, remember, is dead, he's buried, and the Pharisees and the chief priests are still worried about what Jesus is going to do to them. (laughs) Just think about that for a minute. They've, They've plotted and conspired got the Romans involved, and had Jesus killed. They're still worried about Jesus, even at this point. So they go to Pilate, and again, who knows what Pilate's thinking at this point. It's like, seriously, guys, like we're still talking about Jesus? So they go, and they talk to Pilate, and they say, you know, Jesus, um, he talked about rising again on the third day. It's funny that they call Jesus a deceiver, even while they say this, because normally if you think someone's a deceiver, you're not really worried about what they're telling you is true. But they're worried enough to actually physically go to Pilate on the Sabbath and start to have a conversation with him. 
So on the one hand, they say that Jesus is the deceiver, yet their other words and actions betray the fact that they're genuinely concerned. The other thing that's interesting is they actually have accurately understood what Jesus was saying all along. Because Jesus did say that he would rise on the third day. Now, why is this interesting? Well, it wasn't that long ago that when Jesus was on trial, they used that exact same idea and completely misconstrued it to talk about the physical temple in Jerusalem as a key way to get Jesus convicted. So we see, on the one hand, the Pharisees actually know what Jesus was saying and use it, in this instance, to get more guards for the tomb. Yet when they needed to present a false idea of what Jesus was talking about earlier to get a conviction, they were very happy to do that too. These are the types of religious rulers that Jesus had preached against his whole ministry. So Pilate agrees. He says, okay, let's put a seal on the tomb. That way, if the stone is ever moved, it's very clear that that seal is broken and they put guards. They're also worried that the disciples might come and steal the body of Jesus. Uh, disciples who were not trained soldiers, who were actually fishermen and tax collector and that type of thing. So you just see the level of fear and paranoia that's at work at this part of the story. At this stage, all earthly power and influence has been wielded against Jesus, both in his life and now even as he's lying in the tomb. The forces of this world are working against Jesus. And that's where we stop for this week at the end of Matthew 27. I want to take a few minutes and just talk about what does it mean to think about the cross this morning? What does it mean to think about these verses? You know, this is something that Christians from the earliest days of the church have tried to do, to try to make sense of the cross, because the cross is at the center of our faith. And in one sense, it's an impossible task. How can we make sense? How can words put into, into making sense of the cross? We can never do it justice. And yet, one way we can do it is, uh, is, is to try to look at the New Testament itself. And there's lots of passages in the New Testament after the Gospels that make sense of and help us to make sense of the cross. And I want to share some of those with you. I want to talk about three main points, and this will be, be brief. Number one, I want to make sure that we understand this morning that the New Testament is clear that Jesus chose to die on the cross. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus just got caught up in events. He didn't really mean to die. Things got out of control. And the reality is, from the, from the Bible, it's very clear that Jesus knew exactly what his destiny was. He knew exactly what he was committing to in order that we might be redeemed. Later in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the writer says, in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's hard for us to understand this whole idea that it was the joy set before him that motivated Jesus to go to the cross. But that's what the Word of God tells us this morning. Second, the cross is central to our identity as Christians. I want to talk about this in two ways. 
The cross is central to our identity as Christians because the cross is the moment and the means by which we, we are brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's the means by which we're brought from slavery into freedom. It's the means by which we're brought from death into life. The Bible has lots of contrasts, lots of ways that it talks about the contrast of our old life in sin and our new life in the Spirit of God. Read the middle part of Romans. Paul explains it in great detail. But the cross is the means by which all of that happens, by which we are made new and our identity is made totally new. As Christians, we believe we are completely new people, that the old nature is put to death and that we are totally new creations. And that happens through the cross. In Romans 6.23, we read that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sin and the sin of each person in the world demanded that a price be paid because it violated the nature of God and His good creation. Sin had corrupted everything in our world and God would not let that corruption last forever. Payment had to be made and Jesus pays the wages of sin personally and completely. Again, the Bible has lots of ways it talks about this. For example, in 1 Peter 2, Verse 24, Peter writes that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So that's the first way that the cross is important for our identity, that it is the means by which we are brought into newness of life with God the Father. Second, the cross provides a pattern by which we are to live our lives. The cross provides a pattern by which we are to live our lives. Theologians and Bible scholars have a term for this. They call it the cruciform life. The cruciform life. And that's a life that recognizes the complete and fundamentally different way that God chooses to exercise His power on the earth. So where the cultures of our world seek power and wealth, that they boast, that they are proud, that they use might, etc., where the biggest, the loudest, the strongest wins... The cruciform life says no. Paul writes in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. As Christians, we boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. We identify with the cross rather than the systems and the values of the cultures of this world. Where there's war, we seek peace. Where there's division, we seek reconciliation. Oppression, we seek freedom. Bitterness, we seek joy. Tearing apart, we seek wholeness. Where there's dishonor, we seek honor, etc., etc. How do we do this? Is it by bullying our way into the culture of this world? By seeking to become the greatest, the loudest, and the strongest? Well, unfortunately, oftentimes that's how we do it. But it's not the way of the cross. The way of the cross says that in humbling ourselves, as Jesus did, to the obedience of God the Father, to His will, and not to our way, we follow Him to our own death. What does that mean? Well, that's the death of our will. It's the death of our selfish ambition. It's the death of our pride, etc. The clearest expression of this cruciform life is found in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes to the church, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the cruciform life. We are to identify with the cross of Jesus. And let me tell you this morning, that is the most difficult journey to take. It's the most difficult place to go. Who wants to? Remember, think about where we are in the story right now with the cross. Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Just think about what the cross means. Who wants to identify with somebody who seems to have so clearly failed in his mission in life? Who wants to identify with a man who is broken, who's bloody, who's reviled, who's crushed and exposed for the world to see? Who would want to identify with that person? We might look at Jesus and say, he tried to take on the powers and the systems of this world, and he tried to find a better way. In the end, though, just like everyone else, he was crushed by the systems of this world, by the powers of this world. Who wants to identify with that person? And yet that's what we're called to do. To identify with Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. Through this kind of identification with Jesus, we see that there is a path to glory, just as Jesus has embodied. He went from the shame of the cross to being exalted by God the Father. We are to identify with Jesus in his death, knowing we will also identify with him in his glory. There's no other way. If you have a hard time making sense of this, and often we do, it goes against everything in our sinful nature. You're not alone. The wider world has a really difficult time making sense of the cross. Paul sums this up when he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, Chapter 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. John's Gospel, chapter 1, it says that Jesus came into this world, he was the light of the world, and though the world was his, the world rejected him. The darkness of this world did not receive him. The cross is offensive to many people, always has been, because it reminds us of our sin reminds us of the sheer injustice of what God had to do for us. And we weren't able to do this by ourselves, to find a way back to God. Colossians 1, Paul writes that it's because of the power of the cross that reconciliation has happened. Colossians 1, he writes that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What does that mean for us? Paul continues, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That is the gospel to us 
this morning. That we now live in peace, reconciled to God, precisely through the death of Jesus on the cross. So where our verses leave us this morning is that Jesus is in the tomb. He's dead. He has a seal upon the stone and guards sitting outside the tomb. We have not yet reached Easter morning at this part of Matthew's Gospel. And we're so quick, because we know Easter's coming, we're so quick to just move right ahead into the next chapter of Matthew and to go right to that morning of Easter. But I want to encourage you this week to not jump ahead to Matthew 28. There's actually a sound of silence. You remember that song, Simon and Garfunkel? The sound of silence this morning is between the crucifixion that happened Friday and the resurrection that's to come on Sunday. And there's a day in the church calendar called Holy Saturday where we actually specifically reflect on the fact that God is silent. Have you ever in your life been tempted to think that God has left the building, that God is silent, that God is weak, that God has nothing to say to you? That's how his followers felt on Holy Saturday. Jesus is dead. His followers are scattered. They, they've heard Jesus talk about the resurrection, but they can't do anything about it. They can't make Jesus rise from the dead. And so they're waiting, and yet their hearts are sorrowful because they have not seen the final victory of God. In our own lives, we often live in that tension. We often live in that place where we know the victory of God is coming. It has been assured on the cross, and yet we haven't seen it yet. That's where we are. That's where we are. We have not come to Matthew 28, verse 1. We have not come to the resurrection. We are in the sorrow of God's silence, waiting for the joy that is to come. I want to finish with a personal story this morning to wrap up the message. A few years ago, more than a few years ago now, I guess, I was a student in Scotland studying theology. Along the way, I came across this picture. This is a picture of the crucifixion by Salvador Dali, who, if you know Salvador Dali, was a completely crazy Spanish artist in the 20th century. Not known for his religious works, but he painted this picture around 1951. And when I first saw this picture, it just grabbed me. It just, I was so captivated by this picture. And I would just look at this picture. I'd look at prints of this picture. I'd look at this picture on the computer. I would just look at this picture. And I was captivated by the fact that it's such a different perspective of the crucifixion. A perspective from heaven. Looking down, And people knew I loved this picture, and somehow or another found out that this picture was actually going to be on display in the city of Glasgow about two and a half hours from where I was studying. So I'm like, great, let's go. So I gather up my friends, and we go to see this, and it was a whole exhibit about religious artifacts. It was all sorts of stuff. It was a huge exhibit. And so this was the crowning piece of the exhibit. And so as they do, they'd put it right at the end. So you had to go through all the other stuff to get to this picture. And I thought, forget all the other stuff. I just want to see this picture. And so I literally like got in the door and just bolted 
for the end of the exhibit. All my friends are kind of taking their sweet time. But I got to this picture, and I'd never thought about what it would look like to actually see this picture. And I get there, and it was overwhelming. It's huge. The picture itself is massive. It's just huge. When you stand in front of it, it's just overwhelming. It's so full on. And if you've ever looked at a piece of art, and you've seen the image on a screen, or you've seen it in a book, and then you actually get to see it in person, the experience of seeing it in person is so much more vibrant. It's just so much more detailed. There's just so much to it. And I was just captivated by this picture. And I just stood in front of that picture for who knows how long until all my friends were done with the exhibit. And I just stood and I tried to take it in. And then they eventually dragged me out. I was just so taken with this image. And that's kind of what I leave, want to leave with you this morning is when we're trying to make sense of the cross, it's hard sometimes to really have it be so vibrant for us to really take it in. But this morning, my encouragement to you is to just take time to look at the cross again. Just to soak it in and just allow yourself to meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus and what it means for us today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much. You are the King of heaven and you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was humbled as a man and then further humbled to die on a cross. We thank you for the fact that it brings us newness of life and it calls us to live a cruciform life. Help us, Jesus, to understand what that means. We give you thanks this morning. We look forward with anticipation to next Sunday celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Pray that you would be with every person here this morning, that you would bless them this week, God. Draw them closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen.